Good morning, everyone. As many of you know, Allison had been a member of our missionary family for more than a decade. But since her return, the pandemic had prevented her from visiting with us. When she asked about stopping by to bring greetings and thanks to the church family, I was glad for the opportunity for her to do so. After she sent her greetings, though, I was able to announce to her and now to you that we've decided to welcome her back into our missionary family in her new role with Youth Unlimited. She'll share more about her new ministry at another time, but for now, here's Allison with a short word of thanks. Hi, everyone at Grace Church. I miss you. Um, it's been a long time. I got home last January 2020, just as we, the whole world, started to hear about a strange virus coming out of the Far East. Wow, that was God's timing. I was able to be home with my family. Um, it's been a year and a half now, and God has been faithful and seen me through the transition in coming back to life in Canada. I just wanted to give you a big shout out, say hello, and let you know how grateful I am for you. Thank you for journeying with me for 13 years uh, overseas. Um, this was our ministry. I, I, I look forward to rejoicing with you in person when I can and letting you know what God accomplished over there. I, I say it's our ministry because you partnered with me right from the start. You uh, financially supported me. You prayed with me faithfully. You loved on me and encouraged me while I was home, saw me through some hard spots as well. So I'm just so very grateful for your journeying alongside the mission over e overseas. Um, I sure hope you're all doing well. I do hope to meet you in person soon. God bless. Hey everyone, welcome back to the online ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're in a series right now called The Unstuck Life. According to the Bible, some people are stuck because they've never heard or only be, believe part of the gospel message. Uh, others never learn to connect to God's power in their lives. And some people figure out the receiving part, but not the sharing. We're convinced that the path to the unstuck life is believe, connect, share. And we hope that God leads you along that path as we look at the Bible together. Now, today's passage looks at how you can have the assurance that your faith is real whether you have what some people call saving faith. Now, if you were to meet Bernardo Provenzano, you couldn't help but be impressed by his faith. A tour of his home would reveal 91 sacred statues, 73 of which were of Jesus. Each one of them had an inscription that read, Jesus, I put my trust in you. He was famous for sending handwritten notes to people. And regardless of what he might be writing about, he'd always include little verses from the Bible, along with religious blessings like, may the Lord bless and protect you. Even when dealing with business matters, he was always giving thanks to our Lord Jesus Christ and speaking about the divine providence and our beloved Lord. And he expressed the hope that he might help us to do the right things. Unfortunately, Provenzano didn't always do the right things. And so he was actually arrested in April 2006. 
When the police arrived at his home, they found him with five Bibles, hundreds of passages underlined and little comments that he had made in the margins. But he had been a fugitive from the law for over four decades. And as head of the Sicilian Mafia, he was given 20 life sentences plus 49 years and solitary confinement for more than 33 years. What did he mean when he had Jesus, I put my trust in you written on all of those statues? What did faith in Jesus mean to him? And more importantly, what does it mean to you? In one sense, it's comfortable for us to talk about Bernardo Provenzano because most of us aren't crime bosses and haven't murdered anyone. It's easy for us to say, my faith in Jesus is real. I'm not like him at all. But how do you know? Surely not being a mobster isn't the standard, right? How can you assess that your faith is genuine? How can you have the assurance that you're accepted by God? Those are the questions that we're tackling in today's passage from James chapter 2. If you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to turn with me to James chapter 2, verse 14. And if you don't have a Bible, just click on the link for today's passage in the description below. I'll read from verse 14 to 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works, when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the word of God. Now, James is trying to help us to evaluate our relationship with God. And so he gives us four case studies in this passage to help us to see three different kinds of faith. The first is what he calls dead faith. Dead faith is when your faith is all talk and no action. There's a disconnect between what you say and how you live. Dead faith, all talk and no action. Now, if you were with us last week, you may be surprised to read verse 14. In last week's passage, we saw that when we put our trust in Jesus, God doesn't relate to us on the basis of our moral and spiritual record, but Jesus's. So we're saved by faith alone. 
But take a look at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Some people have thought that James was confused. Is he saying that you have to have faith in Jesus plus a certain number of moral and religious points in order to be acceptable to God? Is it faith plus works equals salvation? Well, that's not his point at all. Notice he's talking in verse 14 about someone who says he has faith but doesn't have works. It's a person who talks a good game, but their life doesn't show any evidence that their words are real. It's not a question of whether faith can save a person. He says in verse 14, can that faith save him? He's asking whether all talk and no action faith can save a person. And the answer is no. In fact, he calls that kind of faith dead in verse 17. He says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Doesn't matter how many statues of Jesus you have in your home. Doesn't matter how many Bibles you own or how many margin notes you've made. Doesn't matter how many verses you can quote. If your faith doesn't lead to action, then you have dead faith. And the message is that dead faith doesn't save anyone. Now, James is worried that this might feel a little abstract. So just as I gave you the case study of Bernardo Provenzano, he gives us a case study in verses 15 and 16 of what a person with empty words and dead faith looks like. He has this picture, a fellow believer who comes to us poorly clothed and lacking in daily food. Now, when it says that he was poorly clothed, you're not supposed to picture someone like Dwight from The Office. It's not just that he's got a poor sense of style. The Greek word is usually translated as naked. The person is probably just wearing a threadbare undergarment and definitely has no coat to stay warm at night. When it says that he's lacking in daily food, the implication is that he's frequently going without meals. He's fallen on hard times and he's looking for mercy. The dead faith response to that person comes in verse 16. Go in peace, be warmed and filled. Now, go in peace was a common Jewish blessing that you would give as a farewell. Here it's a polite way of saying, you better be going now. <laughs> but before he leaves, the person with dead faith pronounces a very spiritual sounding benediction. Be warmed and filled. It sounds spiritual, but how is a person heading out into the cold night in his underwear ever going to get warm? How is a person that doesn't have enough food to survive ever going to get filled? The words are phrased like a prayer, but to the person that's being asked to leave, they feel like cruel mocking. They're empty words from a person with dead faith. So we need to ask whether our faith is all talk and no action. And chances are, if you're listening to this sermon, you'd probably say that you have faith. But is it dead faith? You might say that Jesus is your Lord. But what does your life say about who's really in charge? Now, James didn't bring up the example of a response to a poor person because there's a certain quota of homeless people we need to help in order to show that our faith is real. But I think it was a deliberate choice. 
You can't become a Christian without recognizing that you are spiritually poor and morally bankrupt before a holy God. You can't come to saving faith without seeing that your sins are a stench to the purity of heaven. Someone who's come to terms with who they are and experienced the grace and mercy of God can't see the needs of others in the same way ever again. Does your faith move you to respond to others in mercy? Are you generous and gracious, or are you all talk and no action? Dead faith never saved anyone. Now, James moves from dead faith to talk next about demon faith. Demon faith is when you know it's right, but don't care to do it. It's when you've got the right head knowledge, but the wrong heart response. It's when you know what's right, but don't care to do it. Now, in verse 18, he, prevents, he presents someone who says, you have faith and I have works. It's someone who just sees them as separate categories. He figures there are faith Christians and there are works Christians. I, I heard one version of this in a conversation I had with a politician in Richmond Hill. He said to me, Paul, I'm not so much into Sunday faith. I'm more about living it all week long. He was into works but not so much faith. The point that James is making though is you can't pick or choose like that. We need a vibrant Sunday faith, to borrow his term, in order to live the way God wants us to during the week. Faith and works come as a set. You can't have one without the other. Then in verse 19, he gives a case study in demon faith. This is a person with great theology and a terrible lifestyle. It says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Now the phrase God is one is at the heart of the Jewish confession from Deuteronomy 6.4. It's the first line of the scroll inside the mezuzah on a Jewish person's doorframe. A belief that there's only one God is a good thing. That's correct theology. But even demons have correct theology and far from reassuring them, it says that they live in terror. They shudder. I wonder if you've ever thought about how orthodox demons are in their beliefs. They know that there's only one God. They believe in the Trinity. They know that Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world. They've witnessed Adam's first sin. They've seen the flood. They know about the call of Abraham. They've seen the temple that Solomon built. They've witnessed the miracles of Jesus. And Satan was able to quote the Bible to Jesus. So the faith of demons isn't just based on what they've seen. They know the scriptures. They'd win the Bible memory challenges. They can debate the brightest pastors and seminary graduates. But the point is, the knowledge hasn't changed them. They've got great theology, but live terrible lives. They believe the Bible so clearly that it says they shudder at the fate that awaits them. They know that they'll face eternal torment for their sins because they know it's right, but they don't have any intention of doing it and they don't have any intention of changing. And what's so scary is that there are probably people listening to this message right now who have demon faith, but without the self-awareness to see it. Do you think that God will save you because you know the right answers? Do you think he'll have mercy on you because you know some correct things from the Bible. 
Does your knowledge of theology and doctrine give you the assurance that God will accept you? It shouldn't. Satan knows the Bible better than I do, better than you do, but he'll face the judgment of God. Demon faith doesn't save anyone. If you know what's right, but don't care to do it, that shouldn't give you any assurance of God's forgiveness or grace. So far, we've looked at dead faith and demon faith. Finally, let's consider saving faith. Saving faith is when your faith is clear from your actions. It's when what you believe can be seen in how you live. Your faith in Jesus is evidenced by the works of Jesus. Your faith is clear from your actions. James gives two more case studies to help us see what this looks like. One's a man, the other's a woman. One's a rich religious Jew, the other's a poor Canaanite prostitute. But they both share a common faith that's clear from their actions. The first is Abraham. In verse 21, James writes, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Abraham was a person whom God called to leave his home and follow him to the land that he would, put, that he would give to him. He put his trust in God and his promises and followed him in faith. Early in his walk with God, a statement is made about his standing. Genesis 15, 6 says, And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. It's hard to overstate how important this verse is. God counted him as righteous because of his faith. In other words, he wasn't righteous in himself. Nobody is. But God considered him righteous as a result of him putting his faith in him and in his promises. But James wants to show how different Abraham's faith was from the dead faith and the demon faith examples he's been talking about until now. So he points to an event much later in Abraham's life in Genesis 22. After waiting what seemed like forever to finally give birth to a son, God asks him to literally sacrifice him as an offering. With his son tied up and the dagger raised above his body, God intervenes and calls it off saying, now I know that you fear God. The point is, Abraham was counted righteous and made right with God through faith alone. But it was a kind of faith that led to radical obedience. It was a kind of faith willing to do whatever God asked. That's what saving faith is. Is that the kind of faith you have? From Abraham, he moves to Rahab. She was a Canaanite prostitute living in Jericho. The Canaanites were destined for judgment for their sins, and the city of Jericho was about to be destroyed. But Jewish spies were first sent into the city, and when they arrived, they were hidden by Rahab. At one point, she says to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. She's saying that everyone could see the power of God on display. They knew that Israel's God was real. But while that fear led Jericho's king and others with him to try and capture and kill the spies, it moved Rahab to protect and save them. And like the tax collector we saw last week, she asked them for mercy. 
Even though she knew her actions could result in her being killed by the king, she was willing to put herself in danger to protect God's people. And what James is saying is that that's how you can see that her faith was real. Her faith led to concrete action, demonstrating love for the people of God at the risk of her own life and safety. That's what saving faith is. Is that the kind of faith that you have? Abraham didn't protect any spies, and Rahab wasn't asked to sacrifice her only son. But their acts of obedience and love showed that faith was alive. It wasn't just talk. And it wasn't just that they were trying to be good people either. We don't say that someone's faith is genuine just because they're not a mobster and have managed to avoid murdering people. Saving faith leads to obedience to God. Saving faith leads to sacrificial love. As Jesus said, you will recognize them by their fruits. Too many people never really hear this truth. They'll refer to people they know who want nothing to do with the church and no commitment to his word, and they'll say, but they prayed a prayer to receive Jesus. Or, but they say that they believe in God. Or they'll talk of people who are selfish and unloving, argumentative and proud, and there's no growth, there's no change. And then they'll say, but they seem to know more about the Bible than I do. Well, they probably don't know more than the demons do. And if they do, they're probably not as self-aware. At least the demons realize that their lack of love and obedience demonstrates the kind of faith that invites the judgment of God. Now, let me close with two ways that you could misunderstand this message. There are some of you who have repented of your sin and you've put your trust in Jesus. You can see that there's been change in your life. And not just years ago, the growth is continuing and it's real. But you can, see, you can see how far you still have to go. You look at what Abraham did, and if you're honest, you struggle to think how you'd respond to that kind of command. Remember that Abraham's path wasn't always so straight. He had plenty of missteps. There were times when he clearly wasn't acting out of faith. But the trajectory of his life was clear. The growth was real. He didn't have a bumper crop every year, but there was no mistaking the fruit in his life. And surely the same, was with, the same was true of Rahab. To come out of prostitution and Canaanite religion and all that came with her baggage, change would be a long and slow process. But I believe that with that moment of faith, her repentance would be shown to be real as it was on that, on that, uh, in that instance and in many others that would follow. And if that's true of you, then this passage is intended to give you assurance. It's God's way of affirming that your faith is real and your salvation is secure. Now, there are probably others of you who aren't so sure. Nobody's ever accused you of having the faith of Abraham, but you're no Bernardo Provenzano either. You're a pretty good person, but obedience to God and his word isn't exactly at the top of your list of priorities. Sacrificial love for God's people isn't a major theme in your life. If that's you, what you may be tempted to do is try and add a few more good works to your life. Turn the dial up just a little. 
And that's exactly the opposite of what this passage is teaching. That would be like duct taping some bananas onto a dead tree. If your faith is dead, you don't make it alive by adding a little work. If your faith is dead, you come in repentance before the one who gives life. You don't try to argue with God that you're good enough the way the Pharisee did last week. You admit that you're a sinner the way the tax collector did. You call on God for mercy, but you do so with the resolution that you're fed up with your sin and ready to turn and go in a different direction. You look to Jesus for forgiveness and new life, but with a readiness to follow where he leads. Let's look to him now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we have so confused the idea of faith. To think that a man responsible for killing countless people would be able to say, Jesus, I put my trust in you. It just shows how confused we are as a society and understanding who Jesus is and what it is, what it means to follow him. Father, I pray for anyone listening today. Help them to see their lives as you do. If there is dead faith, if there is demon faith, rescue them, Father. Help them to see not that they might be condemned, but that they might be saved. That they might come in repentance before the one who gives life. That they might come to saving faith and know true hope and true relief and true peace with God. Lead them to the cross. Lead them to the Savior who died in their place, that they might have life in him. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I hope this message has helped you to understand what it means to believe in the place of repentance, faith, and works. I hope it's helped you to assess whether you have dead faith, demon faith, or saving faith. And if your faith is dead, know that Jesus gives life. Come to him for it. If it's raised questions or if you'd like to know more about a relationship with Jesus, send me an email or leave a comment below. If you think this is a message that others need to hear, share the link and help spread the word. As always, for more messages of hope, visit gracebc.ca. God bless and see you next time.